Hi, I'm Teresa. And I'm Alana. And I'm Nina. And I'm Jessica. And I'm Sachi. We, we are, are the Feminine Asians. Asians. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of Seven Asians. This is Jessica, and we are recording at 3.40 p.m. on Thursday, April 23rd. If this is your first time listening, thanks for joining. Feminine Asians is a podcast born out of a class project for Women's Studies 4900F, Integrating Theory and Practice under the guidance of Dr. Josie Weinbach at the University of Georgia. So in this podcast, the five of us, Asian American women, discuss current events and our own lived experiences from an Asian American feminist perspective. So in our last episode, which was our first one, titled We Are Sick, we talked about COVID-19 and how the pandemic has affected Asian Americans. So check it out if you haven't already. But this episode is called Dosas and Dumplings. As you can tell, today we'll be exploring the politics and culture of food and what it means for Asian Americans through a feminist, anti-racist, and anti-imperialist lens. So grounding our discussion first in terms of like the current events and current global context of COVID-19. This is really relevant for our discussion about food and the food industry, given that, you know, the restaurant and food service industry has been super hard hit and a lot of folks have lost their jobs. So does anybody want to sort of kick it off with any thoughts about food and specifically food for Asian Americans in the time of COVID? Well, I just think about like the source of all of this racism stems from the idea that it spread from that and that's the cause of the coronavirus and then that is why a lot of people are avoiding eating at Chinese and other Asian restaurants. You know, it's it's not like it's a new thing. It's such a long history of mm-hmm. stereotypes of Chinese people and other Asian people eating like quote unquote weird food. Like there's this age old stereotype of Chinese people eating dogs and just like these associations of being dirty and poor and exotic and Mm -hmm. low class based on what you eat. Yeah. Something that I feel like I've been seeing a lot is like the separation of like racism and like trying not to tie like, Oh, but like, I'm not being racist when I say that, like, it's just not okay to eat these things. Like certain things are just not normal to eat and kind of trying to like separate that from like, but but I'm just like, no, that's like born out of racism. There is not really separation. Like the reason that you think these things are weird to eat is because you, there's racism there. Like it's so interesting for me to like see people trying to like separate those two things from each other. You know, it, it brings up the idea of what's, what kind of food is considered normal, especially for white Americans. Like white Americans, they're normal that like, we eat cows, we eat pigs. But I know in other countries that's frowned upon. I always feel weird when I hear Chinese Americans defending against some of these accusations by saying like, oh, well, like no one I know actually eats bats or dogs or like sharks is another example. But it's like, so what if they did? It's just a social construction that defines like what animals are considered like pets and what are considered meat. This also reminds me um, of something that I did a little bit of research about last semester and that also came up in some of the shows that we watched for this episode, but it also reminds me of this long history of Chinese food being associated with MSG and the connotations of that being really negative and implying that Chinese food is dirty and unhealthy. And MSG is monosodium glutamate. It's literally just salt and an amino acid that is already in your body and it literally just binds to one of your like taste receptors on your tongue and produces this flavor that we call umami. There has really been no conclusive evidence that it has any negative health effects. But for this for the longest time, there was this quote unquote Chinese restaurant syndrome where people claimed that they would get like headaches and feel sick and have like diarrhea or whatever after eating at a Chinese <laughs> restaurant. And there was all of these like fake links between Chinese food and this like Chinese restaurant syndrome. But if you look at like a bag of potato chips, like Lay's, there's so much MSG in there and you don't see anybody complaining about that. So it just goes to show how like so much racism and xenophobia is like embedded into discourse around food. So yeah, I don't know. Why do y'all think that so many of these racist tropes against Asians and Asian Americans revolve around what we eat? I just kind of wanted to add that, like, in the episode um, from, like, 
uh, from Ugly Delicious. Like I got so uncomfortable when like David Chang was having that discussion with that like focus group of people who like were like devouring all of the fat, like the chips and stuff. And they were like, yeah, I don't feel any headaches or anything like that. And he's like, well, guess what? There's MSG in that, like a lot of it. And it was just so funny to like watch their faces change and realize like it might just be racism. And it was, I was just really funny. <laughs> one of the, um, one of the men like in that scene, Tachi, like he literally was like, yeah, whenever I walk by a Chinese restaurant, like I'm just flooded with memories of me shaking. <laughs> what were you like? That has never happened to me after eating food. Like that, that you're is shaking. Such, like, 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 I just, I don't know. I just thought that was so funny to me that he said that and that people literally like headaches and this and that are just, Honestly, like, I, so growing up, I really didn't know much about MSG. I, I just, like, kind of put that, like, bad for you and, like, in, like, Chinese food. But, like, my family and I still, like, ate Chinese, you know, so those available to us in our area and stuff. So, like, it really wasn't a big deal. But it was really funny hearing about this stuff. I had no idea. And just to kind of, like, talk about what you said, Jessica, about like, where I think it comes from, I just think it all stems from, like, that racist trope of, like, the yellow peril. That trope of, like, the perpetual foreigner and like what are they bringing over from their like foreign land it was in this it was in the way that we viewed food too as well yeah I feel like this renewed racism because of COVID has just really exposed how like food is just so much more than like just food even though we might take it for granted on a day-to-day basis but how it just really embodies a lot of different like political and cultural meanings and how it can be a marker of identity in a positive way but also it can be a really strong vehicle for racism. I remember like at one point in the episode um I think David Chang was literally like there has never it has never been more accepting like the western market has never been more accepting of like um like differences in cuisine and like this is the time and I was like wow that has really not aged very well <laughs> like I just don't think that's necessarily the same like I couldn't say the same thing now you know what I mean like looking back like maybe that like I feel like there's like a cycle of like like some pandemic happens and like it's like tied to like China somehow and then it's like oh like this food is no longer acceptable because like this is where disease comes from I'm really glad you mentioned that because it's just like I saw a tweet that said Asian Americans are only considered Americans if it's convenient for white people. And then when it's not convenient for them anymore, we're not considered Americans and we're just we're as marginalized and discriminated against in very different ways, but just as much as other people of color. Yeah, it really just shows how like fragile that acceptance is and how it can instantly be be taken away when something like this happens Mm -hmm. and white people need a scapegoat. Like our honorary whiteness is very temporary and it's not real. That's, you know, the thing that people talk about, that we're closer on this sort of like white, black spectrum and we're closer to whiteness than we're closer to blackness. But it's, it's fake and it's made in a way to kind of hide a lot of anti-blackness. For sure. Um, so, yeah, I guess now's a good time to sort of dive deeper into this theme of food uh, and identity and racism just beyond the context of um, COVID. And just to give it a little bit of background, we've already kind of touched on it a little bit, but we did watch two episodes of the show Ugly Delicious for this podcast. So just to give a quick summary for listeners who might be unfamiliar, Ugly Delicious is a show on Netflix where the celebrity chef David Chang, who is Korean American, travels around the world to learn about different dishes and cuisines, as well as history and politics behind them and he brings on a bunch of different guests and talk to a bunch of different chefs and home cooks around the world to learn how these dishes are evolving and adapting across time and space so we watched two specific episodes for this podcast uh the first one is fried rice from season one episode seven and so that episode contrasts sort of western representations of chinese food with more traditional regional chinese cuisines and explores a lot of the history that we've just talked about of racism and xenophobia that are embedded in those representations. And then season two, episode two is called Don't Call It Curry. And that one kind of unpacks the complexity and the variation in regional Indian cuisines and talks a lot about the history of colonialism and how that's shaped modern Western understandings of Indian food 
in, including, as the title suggests, the construction of this idea of curry. So I just kind of wanted to kick it off with asking y'all what some of your first impressions and overall thoughts were about the show and the episodes that we watched. I would just say like one small thing that I kind of wanted to throw in there was throughout both episodes, they mentioned class a lot in the, like the way that class, how you perceive food. And so like they like contrasted higher end restaurants with like lower cut restaurants, street food and all the like, different variations. Um, there were, especially in the fried rice episode, the idea that like food that is cheaper and like faster or whatever in like, a way is not worthy of as much respect as like a five-star meal. Uh, like, and you know, most of those restaurants that were making like quote unquote five-star like expensive Chinese food probably weren't even done by Chinese chefs a lot of times. So I thought that was super interesting and just like the the way that class can be like intertwined in the way that we look at food um, and like authenticity and like whether food should be like respected or not. I really like the show. I thought Chang was just did an amazing job. He's very charismatic and he like I just found it really interesting that he acknowledged a lot of his like like his ignorance in terms of other cuisines, especially in the Don't Call It Curry episode, he felt like a shitty person for not knowing so much about Indian cuisine. And I was like, I completely agree. I don't know that much about Indian cuisine either. And it was just really fascinating to be able to watch the episode and get to know more about it and to know more about the political and economic and social dynamics that occur within that community and that culture. Yeah, I definitely like enjoyed a lot of parts of like the two episodes that we watched. I thought it was like, I was definitely learning things that I didn't know, like even about like Indian cooking and Indian food. Like I thought I was pretty well versed in a lot of those things. And it was super interesting for me to like kind of learn more about like the regional differences and stuff like that. Um, there were also like certain parts where I was like, oh, I don't know how I feel about this. Like the part where like David Chang like goes and like learns more about like Ayurvedic cooking and stuff like that. His like approach to that, I was like, oh, like I, I'm not a fan. Like he was like, oh, I like don't believe in this. Like, don't you feel like this is weird? Like that people are profiting off of this. And I was like, no, there's like hundreds and millions of years of history that goes into understanding like why these foods, like it's not like weird. It's like what goes in, that's what comes out. Like I was like, this is not like, yeah, maybe white people are profiting off of this, but Indian people have been doing this for years, not to profit off of, I don't know. Anyway, I'm sure people have thoughts on this. <laughs> I like saw that and like, I obviously hated the way that he approached that like situation and how like discounting he was of what that like doctor was saying. But like, this is something that like I've seen so often that honestly I wasn't surprised like we see a discounting of like the traditional sciences and practices of all types of cultures just because it's not like the official sciency way that like white people have started doing like that just uh, immediately makes it invalid and that like really pisses me off because like Ayurvedic medicine has like like hundreds of years of science backing up like everything that happens and like we've been doing it for centuries like Nina said but just because not like I don't know going through trials and everything like that like the scientific rigor that everyone else expects it's, it's apparently just like not legitimate and that that really pisses me off. I think like it's valid for uh, David Chang to like make, you know he mentioned how he had done some research or taken a course in Ayurvedic medicine in college and like he didn't believe it. And like, the thing is, I am not going to sit here and be like, everyone has to believe in it because you don't. And I don't know if I believe in it. And that's very fair. But there was a conscious framing to go to an Ayurvedic doctor in this episode and put a camera in this man's face and then blatantly laugh and be like, sorry, I can't hear it when he's trying to explain stuff to you in a language that's not his own and trying to explain a science in English that wasn't created or constructed in the English language. So I really thought that that was, I liked the Curry episode in a lot of ways, but I also didn't like it in some things that he said. And that was a huge part of um, what really put me off from it. Just making a complete mockery of a science or like a, just a field of like Ayurvedic medicine. That's been, that's practiced by a lot of people in India. It's believed by a lot of people. So yeah, didn't really appreciate that like at all. Yeah, I feel like this just goes to show that, like, Asians are not a monolith. Like, you have this Korean-American dude, like, waltzing in 
to this Ayurvedic medicine place and just like being completely ignorant and like ignorance is one thing but he also just like was not engaging his ignorance in a sensitive way and like wasn't being humble about it and wasn't opening himself up to like respect the expertise and knowledge of other people and other cultures and instead he just came in with this skepticism and didn't even like consider the validity of this literal healer who is like feeding him and has a degree and has a lot of expertise, like way more than David Chang does. And it also just goes to show like Chang is a second generation Asian American. And so, I mean, he's conditioned in, like to believe in Western medicine and Western science. And so it just shows that it's like, it's not just white folks who are prone to that sort of like bias, like we're all embedded in it too. And it really reminded me of like, themes that we've talked about in this class and in other women's studies classes of like the politics of epistemology and questioning like what kinds of knowledge and expertise are valued and legitimated and what kinds aren't because it's so clear in that interaction that Chang is really privileging one kind of knowledge and it's western science and medicine and completely discounting the centuries old accumulation of knowledge that this ayurvedic doctor was trying to impart and I just want to mention, like, as a child of immigrants, like, his parents immigrated from Korea, and, like, he's creating this show to dive into different cuisines and, like, showcase different cultures, and he's doing that, like, you know, it's a very, it's a great thing to do, and so I just thought it was so interesting, because the way he's framing it, like, he's making a mockery of it to a white audience, like, to, like, through a white lens, basically, is what I'm trying to say, so he could have, like, gone about it in a different way, um, and, like, if he's including Ayurvedic medicine, like, maybe showcase it and, like, with the purpose of people learning about it instead of him making fun of it, he just owes, like, more to, like, Indians than that. What did you guys think about the presence of Aziz? Yeah, his, he is not a great human being, so. Um, but what did you guys think of his presence in the show? And he, apparently he's a regular guest, because I was very uncomfortable. I, not just because of knowing his history with women, but also like um, just like some of his critiques and his, I don't know, reactions to some of the discussions around food. It was kind of a, I don't know, obnoxious. Bothersome. I just noticed, I think they were in India and they were, I forgot, it's like Tali, I believe, where it's like a communal food um, experience. And during that moment, he which is like, oh, you know, I've never done this before. Like, I don't know, which is fine. But like, just the way, maybe it's like my earlier, like, perception of who he is, and then clouding my judgment of being like, I just don't like him. Yeah, I mean, I definitely do not like him. <laughs> so yeah, uh, I definitely felt uncomfortable with like his presence in it. I didn't necessarily think that he was like being obnoxious. I think, I mean, definitely like, not to invalidate what you said, like, that's definitely, like, something that, you know, mm -hmm. oh, yeah. you can definitely experience, but, like, I don't know if I necessarily got that, because I used to watch his stand-up, like, a lot before all that happened, so, like, maybe I'm more used to, like, his comedy, um, but still, would have loved the episode without him in it. Definitely did not need him. There are a lot of other Indian <laughs> people that could have been in that episode. <laughs> Yeah, kind of like seconding what Ahana said in some ways. I also am like used to his comedy, so I didn't think like his reactions were necessarily obnoxious, but I thought him being there seemed kind of unnecessary for like the creation of the entire episode because he literally said, oh, it's like the person who knows the least about Indian cooking and the person who knows the most. I'm like, then why are you there? <laughs> like, <laughs> Sarah Chang was like, let me bring an Indian guy who uh, is my friend to like bring this some authenticity but in reality he like doesn't know that that much about like indian cooking at all this is like kind of funny even when we had like that portion like at his house it was like his mom doing all of the preparations so i was like right why is he here yeah. <laughs> something i did find heartening though david chang did invite a lot of uh women like food critics and food experts into his episodes, but I feel like he could have done a lot more. And I feel like he could have easily invited another woman to replace Anzari in the show. You know what I mean? Because like if he repeatedly shows up throughout the entire show, not just this one episode, I, I think it would have been really nice to see a lot more women and non-binary folks invited on the show to share their expertise and their stories about food. 
I also think that like there was no reason for him to be there considering that like Padma Lakshmi was there like she honestly provided like a very warm presence she like the like beginning and ending of that episode was so beautiful with like her cooking and like you know like guiding David through like home cooking and stuff and so like she had this gorgeous kitchen and like it was it was just wonderful and honestly like if we had followed her throughout the entire episode like I would have been pretty happy with that too like <laughs> Something that I wanted to know about, like, y'all's thoughts on this was near the end of, like, the Don't Call It Curry episode, one of the food writers was, like, I'm really worried that, like, certain parts of, like, Indian cooking and Indian cuisine are going to be so, like, like mainstream, like, these, like, turmeric lattes and things like that, that they're going to lose, like, the roots and they're going to lose, like, that Indian identity that they have. And I had never really thought about that before, I guess. I was always just like, oh, I want Indian cooking to become, I want people to enjoy it more. I want people to see it as more of, like, a regular thing that they can eat normalized. Um, and in some ways it has. I have been seeing it, like, do that. Maybe that's just because of the people I hang out with, though, so I don't know. But at the same time, I'm like, wow, what if, like, 10 years down the road, people are like, sipping chai and they have no idea where it's coming from like that would make me actually really distressed I don't know how do some of y'all feel about that well I think that like that kind of reminds me of the way that David Chang like ended that episode by saying that there were three different like movements or like what like phases in which Indian food and like Indian culture becomes integrated into like American society and western society and like his second point that really like stuck me and like in a wrong way was like him saying the like culture moves in and like the way that he explained that was like the Beatles and like yoga and stuff. And to me, it wasn't a movement. It was cultural appropriation. And like, I think that's kind of the difference here in that like, I'm okay with Indian food becoming accepted in Western society. I'm totally fine with people like liking it and understanding it and making it. I just want people to remember those roots and I don't want people to take the culture without like realizing that there is an origin for that place. And so I think it can be done well. Do I think it will be done well? No, but I don't know how <laughs> to like fix that. <laughs> I like the part where they like went off to like that one region in India where it they were like, oh, do you practice yoga? And they were like, no, we practice eating. And I was like, okay, thank you. Like, it did show things like the regionality in India where, like, people are like, no, we don't really practice yoga, like, ever. Like, I know a lot of Indian people just don't do yoga. So that's kind of nice. That's all I was going to say. Can we just talk about the very beginning of the episode where straight up David Chang and Padma both are like, Indian food is ugly. Ha, 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 ha. It's so <laughs> ugly. It's so yummy. I was so like, hurt. Oh, really? I was, like, actually, like, just fuming. Like, I I was, like, how? How's it ugly? You're ugly for saying that. Like, I was so offended. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I feel like, yeah, I feel like I definitely could have phrased that better. I think to provide a little more context, like, the reason the show is called Ugly Delicious, I believe, is because, like, He's trying to unpack, like, oh, I'm going to go learn about all of these foods that are considered ugly uh, in the mainstream and, like, unpack why they are and, like, kind of challenge that conception. So I think they were trying to say, like, oh, it's considered ugly because it's not, like, the big white plate with, like, one tiny piece of chicken breast in the middle that you get at, like, a five-star French restaurant. That definitely could have come through, like, more clearly. Right, yeah. She also made I mean, a just, point to say that it was North Indian food that's ugly and South Indian food is not. And I was just like, wait a second. Like, I don't know why that distinction had to be made, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just, I feel like it just, I don't know if maybe it's because I'm Indian, so I was offended, but like, I think Indian food really gets a lot of like, the hate for being quote unquote ugly or like scary, intimidating, like, and it's that's just really messed up to me because it's so yummy and it's flavorful and it's colorful green and orange and food like that's normal and literally maybe i'm just offended because i posted this the indian food that i made the other day on my instagram story and someone from high school literally responded and was like that looks gross and i was like can i block oh, you <laughs> 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 that would look so good so, too oh my god it did look i literally texted you i was like oh my god this looks amazing <laughs> i know it's okay we're over it but yeah a lot of people hate for being ugly uh, for no reason dude i was Not really you. like mom you can know. you make some paneer <laughs> after i saw that I was like, can you make some paneer at home <laughs> 
Shachi, you made a point about how, like, um, in the episode, they differentiated between northern and southern Indian food um, and how, like, in terms of appearances. So, like, can you talk a little bit more about that in terms of, like, regionality and how, like, you know, food is different according to region? Yeah, I mean, like, so in America, like, Indian food that you see here is, like, like tandoori chicken I think like that I don't eat like chicken so I'm not really sure in terms of like the meat dishes or whatever but it's like usually like food that you get from a specific region called Punjab um and so that's your like traditional like paneers and those like orange and green sauces like that's where that comes from and then they're like I can't speak to every region of course but Gujarati food which is like the food that like my parents make and the food that we eat where I'm from but like it looks very different it's not that same like creamy base it's more like oily and we use a lot of ghee which is like um like a different type of butter um and then like South Indian food they rely less on like the traditional like chapatis and rotis which are like the breads that we eat and they eat a lot more like rice based things so like there's idlis and dosas which is like part of the name of this episode and so like it's very different based on like what types of like things are available in that region and I'm sure like some of y'all can talk a little bit more about like the food where you guys are from um but yeah so like the Indian food here is not like this it's it's not this monolithic like one curry type dish it's like very very different like if you talk to like Indians in India like if you say I want to eat Indian food like they don't know what the fuck that means because it's like very different <laughs> everywhere you go like you can't just say I want Indian food um so that's just that's just a little bit about that the way you were describing all of that I was like oh my god I really want some food right now <laughs> but but yeah like for like I just think about like for Vietnamese food like I know this episode's very um Chinese and Indian centric but like just coming because I'm Vietnamese like I know from my own history it's also very regional like before we recorded this podcast I had a conversation with my mom who's from Saigon which for those who don't know, it is the southernmost part of Vietnam. And she told me how pho, our most popular national dish, varies a lot across regions in the country. For instance, northern pho based in Hanoi, the capital, uses wider rice noodles, less vegetables, and fewer sauces. Northern pho is focused on like a clear and simple broth taste, whereas like southern pho is slightly sweeter and bolder and uses longer and skinnier rice noodles. Um, and then northern people prefer eating pho with chicken meat or simple minced rare beef, whereas southern people prefer eating pho with meatballs called pho bavien. And my dad is the cook in our house for pho, and he's from Saigon. So he sometimes makes pho bavien, or my personal favorite, pho thai nam, or pho thai nam. I always, like, change my pronunciation, how I pronounce these things, depending on who I'm with. But pho thai nam, which is when you make raw beef tenderloin and dunk it into your broth, which is, like, steaming hot, by the way, and it's raw. And then you cook it by basically dunking it into your soup alongside your brisket and your noodles, and you just eat it. And it's delicious. And then you just add a little bit of sriracha, poison sauce, Thai basil, bean sprouts, and lime. And then boom, you got yourself a whole ass southern pho meal. Yeah, that's so really good. Really so good. That's so good. <laughs> I, uh, I just make myself really hungry. <laughs> going off of the regional differences in like Vietnam and like within India and things like that. I like how they split it up. Like not only are like their differences between region, but like within like the freaking households within the region. I was like, that's so true. Like that one part where like, um, I don't remember who, maybe it was like Aziz Ansar's family where they were, they were like, Oh, like, I don't like Gita auntie's chicken curry. Cause it's, I, I use my mom's name because I don't want anybody to feel bad. Cause I mean, everyone loves my mom's chicken curry, but like, it's just like very interesting <laughs> to me that I'm like within specific like 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 groups of Indian family friends. Like I know people people in our family friend group be talking shit about different aunties like curry. You know what I mean? Because like it uses different ingredients and it's like based off of your different region from where like where you are from in India things like that, which is I think is super interesting. Yeah, going off of that, there's like this one dish that I learned from my dad. Um, and it's just like this soy braised pork belly. And it's like one of the most decadent foods you can eat. Um, and it's like really iconic within Chinese cuisine. And there's like as many variations of it as there are people in China. Because like my dad makes it one way, but then my uncle like makes it with beer instead of cooking wine. And then my grandpa makes it a different way with like a different kind of sugar and he does things in different orders. And I all think theirs is the best, right? So it's just like going to show that you, like, you can break it 
down, not just by like nation or region, but like even down to the individual level. And it just really challenges this construction of like Asians and Asian food as a monolith. This is a little off topic, but I just had to mention, I thought it was um, in the fried rice episode when they were at a Chinese restaurant. I think it was David, uh, Wendy, and another woman whose name I forget. Um, when they were like ordering food, I thought it was so cool. And this is something that I had no idea about that a lot of restaurants have like a Chinese menu slash like a secret menu. If you all can talk about that, because I literally had no idea. And I thought one, that it was the coolest thing ever. And two, that it created a very, very awesome sense of community. Um, kind of like a secret, like, like, oh, haha, like F these white people, they don't even know what's going on kind of thing. And I love that. Yeah, there's this Chinese restaurant um, that's like three minutes away from my parents' house. And it's so funny. Like, if you get the white people menu, it's just like fried rice, like chow mein, whatever. And then, like, <laughs> they, get, they always give us the Chinese menu, obviously. And it's literally just like handwritten Chinese words. Like, I can't even read the whole thing because I'm just like, I don't know what that is. But, like, it's literally just like scribbled on a page. And it's just like, it's, you know, it's home cooked food. Um, it's like really funny. Um, but it also just goes to show that, like, I think it's really interesting to think about how, like, Chinese and other Asian immigrants to the U.S. are, like, really taking advantage of that. And, like, they're obviously really aware that, like, white people prefer different kinds of food than actual Chinese people or actual Vietnamese or Indian people. And so they'll, like, use that to their advantage. They're like, okay, well, I'll profit off of these white people who want to come in and eat fried rice and chow mein every day. Mm -hmm. But then I'll also serve up like the real stuff for my community members. And it's just really awesome to see that you can like sort of keep both sides going. Like on one side as a survival strategy to just like maintain that source of income. But on the other hand, like having that opportunity to share the food of your community and your homeland. Like that kind of reminded me of the one, one part of the, um, like the fried rice episode where one of the women in like the MSG study group was like, I mean, if it's something that's like 450, like, and it's like meat, like I wouldn't like, it's like, I don't know. Like that's like not very much money kind of being like, wow, like I'm only paying 450 for something. It's probably trash. But then at the same time, they're not willing to pay like a lot of money. I'm like, what do you want? I'm so confused. Like what is the perfect price point for this food? Like, I don't know. I was just, I just thought it was really interesting because it's like, it can't be too cheap because otherwise it's trash or if it's too expensive. Like the food is too trash to be that expensive, you know, like that like weird balance between like how expensive it can be. Yeah. That's a really good point. I feel like people are just like expect most Asian food with the exception of like some Japanese food, because for some reason, like Japanese food and Japanese identity is just associated with like high class and refinement which I would like to unpack more. Like, I don't really know where that came from. But anyway, like, basically all other Asian cuisines are just associated with cheapness. Um, it's also interesting to think about in terms of, like, what kinds of food get attention in the food world and, like, where are the Michelin stars going? And, like, what restaurants are getting coverage in, like, mainstream food magazines? And I feel like we're starting to see a change in this trend in the U.S., because I feel like our food culture is shifting towards a more like casual multicultural style and like starting to see the value in not fancy food. Uh, but it is really interesting that like people just aren't willing to pay more money for food cooked by immigrants. I also thought that one part of the, um, of the, episode where it kind of like related the jobs that um Chinese people were forced to take like laundry and cooking to like kind of being womanly jobs and like I kind of like related that a lot of like a lot of the times how we talk about like Asian men being seen as very feminine and they have to like really try hard to like break that feminine like like name for themselves and like try and like show show their masculinity off and I was like wow that that itself is like so tied to like yellow peril and like the jobs that we were like people were forced to take because like otherwise seen as threatening to white men and everything comes back to the white man. And I was like, Oh my God, everything. <laughs> the white men are really fucking them. I know. <laughs> it was also really interesting to think about like, you know, because for so many immigrants 
and specifically Asian immigrants, like opening a restaurant is literally just like, this is what I'm doing to survive and like put food on the table for my own family. It's not necessarily something that they came over and like pursued as a career or as like a passion. Um, like there's this dynamic, and I think it's touched upon in the fried rice episode of Ugly Delicious, where like, like second gen and third gen and so on and so forth, like the children and the grandchildren of immigrants, like our parents don't want us to go into the food industry. Like they're like, oh, I didn't bring you, I didn't like come here for you to go work in a restaurant. Like I came here for you to, to be XYZ professional. Um, so it's really interesting to see this new wave of like second gen and third gen Asian American chefs who are like, no, I love food and I love cooking and it is an art and this is my career. Um, and I'm going to reclaim that heritage and that cuisine. And it's, it's just so interesting to see like how different generations approach that because for, for our parents' generation, it was like, no, this is just something that I have to do to make money so that I can pay for you to go to college and do something better. I don't want you to do what I do um, because I want you to have a better life. Um, but now there's this like emerging movement of younger chefs who are saying, actually, I want this life. Yeah, and I think, like, what you said, like, really stuck with me. Like, it's all about reclamation at this point. Because, like, for our parents, it was coming, you know, here to America and assimilating and making sure that you're able to, like, survive. I mean, a lot of our parents, like, gave up the degrees that they had in their, like, wherever they, like, immigrated from. Like, my mom was, in, like, a registered nurse back in India. And my dad was, like, an art teacher. And, like, now they're working, like, jobs that they're not, I mean, they're overqualified to be doing, but they have to do them in order to survive and support us. And then like for us, it's about like trying to like find that identity that's kind of been lost in the mix of like Westernness that we were like brought up in because like we're not surrounded by our culture anymore. And we're the only people that we have are like the community members that have also immigrated and our parents. And like, maybe if you're lucky, you have some family, but like, overall it's like me kind of like struggling and trying to keep my head above water to like like keep in touch with like my roots or like whatever those roots might be um so I think that like that move towards like trying to like recreate food and trying to bring all that back and like integrate into society and like being more forceful about it is about like us like just saying that like yeah we have a place like our authentic whatever selves like has a place in this country too that brings up something else that I wanted to talk to y'all about. And I, I think was also touched on in these episodes, which is like the term authenticity and like what role that idea plays in defining Asian and Asian American foods, especially as Sachi mentioned, when we're thinking about like our generation and the generations after us, like what it means for us to be like reclaiming the cuisines of our heritage and cooking those foods, but also maybe not cooking them the same way that our parents are making them or that our grandparents are making them. And so like, what does that mean? Are we, are we violating some like sacred principle of authenticity? Um, so yeah, like, what do y'all think? Um, okay, well, first off, I hate the term authenticity because it just really brings up this idea that one version, one monolithic version of what is authentic. And it's usually set by like this very whitewashed standard of like what, what white people assume is authentic. And then they put that stereotype onto other people that they meet of that community. But I just think about how like within like certain communities and certain cultures, the idea of authenticity really varies based on region. And this kind of ties into like class and geography. So for instance, like most Vietnamese immigrants in America are from the South, are from Saigon. For instance, my dad immigrated to the state of Idaho as a boat refugee when he was 28, which was back in the 80s. And Idaho is very white. Um, my dad was like pretty poor and alone as a boat refugee. There weren't a whole lot of Vietnamese people in Idaho during that time, let alone Vietnamese food and Vietnamese grocery stores. So these Southern Vietnamese people, my dad included, had to cook their cultural dishes with the ingredients that were available to them, which were American ingredients, and they had to import any other foods and ingredients from Vietnam themselves. And this proved really hard because much of Vietnamese cuisine has fish in it, it is very heavily seafood based, and Idaho is landlocked. <laughs> so you can imagine the kinds of Vietnamese dishes that came out of the resources that were available to them at the time. 
And then I just think about like Vietnamese restaurants that you see now in the States and in our local Athens, Georgia, where University of Georgia is located, which predominantly serve Southern Vietnamese food and aren't really considered high class because they're owned by working class immigrants. On the contrary, I've been fortunate to go to the United Kingdom, particularly England, and there are Vietnamese immigrants over there as well. And most of them are from Hanoi, from the northernmost part of Vietnam, and they cook their food very differently and have access to very different ingredients. There's like actually fusions of Indian and Vietnamese British restaurants. There are fusions of Chinese and Vietnamese British restaurants. And it's really cool and different, and I think authentic in their own way. Um, I remember eating pho in London and feeling very confused because the pho there was so different from what I was used to. I remember telling my cousin, who's British, like, this isn't pho. Like, this this is absolutely not pho. And in reality, it is pho. It's just, like, it's just pho that I'm not familiar with. And then I remember having, like, a similar cultural shock eating Korean barbecue in London because Korean British people don't serve their barbecue like we do in the U.S where it's like super noisy and it's in cramped hot places with loud K-pop music blaring over the speakers and there's like hot Korean dudes serving food. Like it's not like that. It's in quiet rooms and there's limited meat and you get charged for extra rice. And it's, I know, I know, right? It's like, it's just different. It's just different, but it's authentic in that way. And it's authentic to them. And it's the only kind of version of cuisine that they know. So like who... Who are white people? Who are other people to say that that's not authentic, you know? Yeah, Teresa, I feel like you've beautifully articulated how, like, this idea of authenticity really erases how food itself is constantly in flux. And it's never this one stable, static thing because every cook changes the food that they make. Um, And it varies so much across time and space. And it's interesting because I feel like I see authenticity being used by both white people and like Asian people, but for different reasons. Um, And this is something I tried to like tease out in the research paper I did last semester. So like on one hand, I feel like you see white people using this idea of authenticity to say like, oh, I have to have only authentic Chinese food or like, um, I don't need Panda Express, that's not authentic. And it's almost like sort of like signaling like, oh, I'm cultured because I know that Panda Express and General Tso's chicken is not authentic Chinese food. And so it is like, like it, it says something about them and how like woke or cultured they are because they have access to that knowledge. Um, but it also kind of, to me, resonates with this like really colonialist, like voyeuristic tendency to be like, oh, I have to have the authentic version of that food like I have to like I'm entitled to it and I feel like that comes from this place of like white colonialism um but on the other hand I feel like I also see like Asian and Asian American people reinforcing this notion of authenticity too like I know in the past I've definitely said that like oh this isn't authentic like I've been to a Chinese restaurant and tasted something and be like oh this is fake Chinese food you know what I mean and so I feel like sometimes like we play into that as well um but I feel like sometimes and from the research I did last semester it also seems that a lot of times like immigrants and their children use this idea of authenticity to kind of like harken back to the idea of a homeland and the idea of like a connection to a nation and a family that is miles and miles away And so they use this idea of authenticity to sort of cling on to that connection when they can't actually physically be there. So it's really interesting. Like, even though the cuisine and the techniques and the flavors and the ingredients in your homeland are probably changing as we speak and are not the same as when our parents left, I feel like sometimes they still cling on to that idea of authenticity because it, 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 it means something for them and for their identity and it allows them to hold on to that background. Yeah, I definitely think that like globalization has made it so, so many of the ingredients that we can get like in India, for instance, we can get it like, like the three Indian stores within two miles of my house now. <laughs> but it's interesting because I feel like regardless of like what happens, like if my parents try biryani, they're going to be like, this is not, this is, this is good, but it's not like paradise biryani from Hyderabad. Like it's, it's never going to be that, you know what I mean? 
even though like in reality like probably pretty close you know like it's probably very very similar but so I definitely see what you're saying Jessica in that like picture of like clinging to home and like everything is like idealized version of like that food like back where it was like originally made which in some ways maybe it is better but like I don't know how I don't know how much I don't know yeah I'm gonna like tell on myself a little bit because I feel like I like have like felt this way often too like I'm one of those people that is like kind of scared of fusion food because I really like just like having like one like type of flavor and it like kind of scares me to like mix flavors so I'm like I don't know how this is going to turn out so like I like I was, I, I was in DC like a summer or two ago and like there's this one restaurant that I love so freaking much but I like at the beginning like was so scared to try it. it's called Rasa and I forget like what part of DC it's in but it was so freaking good but at the first time I, I tried it I was like I'm so scared because it was like basically a chipotle but like Indian style and I was like Ooh. these flavors yeah it was so it's so good if you're ever there please go but like at first I was like oh my god these flavors they don't like mix like I'm not supposed to put this and this together and I was like this is weird like this isn't authentic or like this isn't something that like my parents would ever make and like I tried it and I freaking loved it it was so good and it was like all of the same flavors that I was familiar with they're all like the same like things that my family has exposed me to but just like combined in a different way and like it made something gorgeous and beautiful and amazing but like I don't know it's like I I know that I like consciously had that like aversion to it and like I wish I didn't but I did oh yeah I like also, there also... Was a sorry no there was a dish called <laughs> I'm gonna butcher this take a chance on me <laughs> which is like so stupid and dumb but also cute and that was like a good I don't I think I had that. that dish but yeah <laughs> that's so cute yeah especially what you said also reminded me like and what Nina said as well earlier it, it's like some of the reasons that we sort of police the boundaries of authenticity ourselves is also just because food is such a an emotional and personal thing and so like a lot of times what we think of as authentic is just like whatever our parents cooked for us right and like that is the platonic ideal of this dish for the rest of my life and even though like for example I've been trying to learn more about Chinese cooking for the past two years and my dad is the cook of the family and so, you know, if, when I visit home on breaks, like I'll shadow him in the kitchen. And when I'm in Athens, I'll like FaceTime him in the kitchen and be like, uh, how much soy sauce do I put in this again? But like, no matter what I do, even if I follow his instructions to a T, it like doesn't taste the same. Right. And I feel like part of that is because it's not about the physical ingredients. It's like, it's about a certain time and a place. Like you were a child you were in your parents' home and like that food will never quite taste the same even if you use everything that they did and do it exactly the way that they, they did. And it's because like, it's a nostalgic, like a affective experience. So like, I think part of the reason that we like cling to this idea of authenticity is also just because like we miss a specific like memory and that memory is really embedded in food. That was beautiful. Yeah, I'm literally getting emotional right now. <laughs> just thinking about like growing up and I miss my parents and it's like oh my god um but I also wanted to mention just to add real quick to that is that also whatever our parents cooked for us while growing up especially us as in like people who are also American and grew up like around white people whatever our parents made for us really shaped how we viewed the entire cuisine um and so I was kind of mentioning this to you guys earlier but not really in this, in this episode my mom, growing up, she made a lot of, like, what Sachi was referring to as, like, North Indian food. Um, so I ate a lot of that, but the good restaurants around us in our area were South Indian food. So we ate South Indian food out a lot, um, but I didn't really see my mom cooking that. So I knew that distinction, but other than that, that's, like, what I thought all of Indian food was. And I had no idea, like, about anything and about the regionality um, until really I got a lot older. but. I just thought that was something that was interesting to point out. Yeah. I think about how colonization has affected what our version of authenticity is and what is authentic. Like for those of you who don't know, but Vietnam was colonized by the French for a really long time. 
it's and like they colonized this starting in the 1880s and then lasted six decades and their colonizing practices affected everything it changed our entire culture like everything that you can pinpoint now in our sort of current culture and our food and the way we dress you can trace it back to french colonization times and like a really good example is like our banh mi um our, which is our national sandwich and it's spelled b-a-n-h space m-i not b-a-h-m which i have seen in like my high school lunch cafeteria like i saw it spelled that way and i was like this is not this is not okay but basically that sandwich is in a french baguette and you put like meat, vegetables, and you spread butter inside of it, and it's delicious. And it varies from like different places. And I know you guys are all looking at me like oh, food, but like <laughs> the thing is, like the bun meat didn't exist until like I don't know, like the early 1930s, you know, maybe. And like if you think about like a lot of like you guys talk about in like Indian culture and Indian cuisine, a lot of this stuff has de- like the, you can trace back like centuries almost. Whereas like for Vietnam so much of our culture and so much of our history have been stolen and appropriated and erased and squashed down. So anything that's popular now, anything that we consider as authentic in all regions, we can only trace it back to maybe several decades, you know, a handful of decades. It's like, it's depressing, but it's also like, it's all we know now. And that's, this is our new form of what is considered authentic. Um, and I really didn't know anything about this until, like, I talked to my family about it. I took an Asian American comparative lit class, and I read more about it. But it's like a lot of this history is just not known. Yeah. Going into a little bit of, like, colonization and history, something that, like, so I guess background, I took this, like, Indian American feminism class last summer and, like, loved the class. And I loved all the readings that I did. But something that really stuck with me was, like, the section I did on food. Um, and there's this chapter in Uma Narayan's Dislocating Culture. Um, it's chapter five. It's about food and colonization. But something that really stuck with me and I've remembered ever since is like the origin of the word curry actually comes from a Tamil word called, I, can't, I don't speak Tamil, but I think it's Thari, Kari. It's K-A-R-I. That's how you like spell it. Um, and I don't know the correct pronunciation of it, but like, British colonizers literally took this word car, like curry and like ch- like changed it into curry and that's like why we call every single Indian like saucy dish curry now like that's that's just literally where it came from and like in terms of the spices like something that I remember that like bugged me to death when I was little was like the fact that my friends would always be like, oh, I'm making curry. Like, where can I buy curry powder? And I just look at them like, what the fuck do you mean curry powder? I have no clue what you're talking about. And like, they'd be like, you know, that thing you get in the store, that mix of spices. And like, I just, I never truly knew what it meant. But basically what happened was like British people took a bunch of the spices that we use and they marketed it as curry to like British people to like sell it to them. And then like they had like Indian folks from India being like, yeah, this is great. This is what we use. It's actually kind of better than what we were using. So thanks, like Britain. And like, that's exactly what happened. And that's why everyone calls it curry. And it like, sucks me off to no end. And obviously, I'm getting very heated. You can hear that in my voice. But like, I just like found that infuriating. Dude, the trauma, like, I'm literally just thinking about being like 14 and having Indian food for lunch, like at school. And people be like, what's curry? Like, is that curry? Like, those memories will never not be traumatic to me. Like, it has just, and honestly, like, now I'm at a point where when people show interest in Indian food, beyond just being like, what's curry? Like, oh, what is that? I'm, like, shocked. And I'm, like, I am just so, it's, like, that pressure of assimilating. Like, when people show interest, I'm, like, oh, my God, yeah, learn about it. Maybe you'll like it, too. Like, I promise it's actually yummy. And just so, it's so crazy to me. It's all shaped from, like, those kind of experiences when I was younger. I feel like that's such a shared experience. Like, I would not let my mom pack my lunch until I was in high school because I was like, I'm going to be cool and I'm just going to, like, do, like, the, like, PB&J sandwich or whatever, like, shit food they have in the cafeteria. And then when I did, like, let my mom pack my lunch or, like, bring, like, leftovers from home, I made sure that it was, like, a, like, stainless steel, like, odor-free, like, container that would not make anything smell. And I'm thinking back and I'm like, oh my God, like, that's like, obviously, like not something I would do now, but like the way that Indian food has become more 
mainstream, like slightly more mainstream. But I still don't know how accepted like that food would be. Like if I was like sitting in a cafeteria right now in high school, I still don't know how comfortable I would feel like bringing some of like my home home food to the cafeteria. You know what I mean? Even though it's like generally more acceptable now than in the past. High schoolers are also generally mean. Just throwing that out there. It makes me think about when like in middle school, like my mom would pack my lunch and she wouldn't like pack like maybe like twice a week, like spam and fried rice. and like every time I bring I had like a friend and she was actually my best friend but we're not friends anymore for good reasons but like she um she was like be like oh my god are you eating rice and spam yes and then I, my mom would always pack like a little container of like soy sauce because I cannot eat anything without soy sauce it has a like I will admit it has like a like a strong smell but it's like it's delicious to me I think it's like amazing and it reminds me of home and it reminds me of like all the foods that I really love the people around me at the lunch table would just like scoot away or just be like, like, what is that? What is that like black sauce, you know? And like, is that spam? Like, don't you get that out of the container? And I'm like, it's delicious. Oh, get some taste and get away from me, you know? Get, get away from me. <laughs> Literally get away from me. Like, it's also crazy how much the term curry has spread. Like, curry is so popular in Japan and it's like a completely different food. I just think about how like in Vietnamese culture, we actually have our own version of curry and we call it, and I spelled it wrong when I texted you earlier, uh, Sachi, but like I looked it up again and it's actually spelled C-A and then dash R-I. So essentially like how you, you know, in the article it spells it just with a C instead of a K and then we pronounce it curry. So curry and so we put chicken in it. So it's like curry ga. And it's delicious, but I just think about how, like, this has traveled to different countries, and it's changed, and it's different, and reinterpreted. And I don't know if that's, like, cultural appropriation, or if it's, like, a different dynamic, um, but, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. yeah, sort of, like, wrapping up some of the, like, threads that ha- we've been touching on, I feel like we've kind of touched on this idea of, like, Asian food becoming more mainstream or more acceptable in the U.S. And like, I know we all have really complicated feelings about that. Like one, do we think it is happening and do we think it will happen? And then on on another level, like, should it happen? And what are the implications of that? Because sometimes I feel like, oh yeah, it would be great for Chinese food to be like more accepted in the U.S. and regarded as a valuable legitimate form of like amazing delicious food and recognizing the regional variation so that you know one day I can walk out in Athens and go to like a legit Sichuan style restaurant but then also go to like get Yunnan noodles somewhere else and like people actually know what that is um but I think you know David Chang also brings up this question in both of these episodes and sort of asks like who does that help and like is that something that we should strive for because I can also see how, I also do feel like, you know, maybe we're losing something if like white people get up all in our business. Because I feel like this always, like I always joke, but there's this like rule of thumb that I go by in terms of like judging the quality of a Chinese restaurant. And it's like how many Chinese people are in there. And if there's like too many white people in a Chinese restaurant, then I don't trust their food, right? But at the same time, I want white people to become more knowledgeable and less ignorant about my food. So it's like, how, how do you balance that? Because I also feel like I'm in a safe space when I walk into like a Chinese restaurant and there's no white people there. Um, so it's just it's like this weird tension. I feel like I'm very protective over like my food. And like part of the reason I don't want it to become like this mainstream thing is because I don't trust white people to do it in the right way. Like I just don't like nothing else has gone really greatly. So I don't see why food (laughs) would go well. (laughs) But like, I just feel protective because I'm like, this is the one thing that I know that hasn't permeated society in the same way that like yoga and chai tea lattes have. So like, I just want people to like, stay away and like, you know, leave this stuff to me. But like, at the same time, I get what you're saying. Like, I do want to just feel more accepted. And like, one way to do that is like accepting the food that I eat. So also with acceptance comes like, accessibility. So for me, it's, I mean, it's hard, because yes, I agree with everything you guys are saying with that, like, dichotomy of being really protective over your own like identity and kind of clinging on because we are immigrants, but then our child of immigrants, but then also at the same time, 
um, like that pressure to like assimilate. But like, I want to, like, you know, I'm, we go to school in Athens, Georgia. Like I want to be able to step out and go like to an Indian market. And there isn't one anywhere near here. And like, I want to, there's one Indian restaurant in Athens and it sucks. And no one I know who's Indian eats there. So I just, you know, that's just kind of really annoying. And like that, if it becomes more mainstream, um, then maybe I can access my actual culture and like at least try to, you know, be able to like partake in that. Um, I don't know. I just think about like the opposite side of what could happen when these Asian foods are, you know, becoming more mainstream. Because I actually have a story of like, like a horror story of when I went into the most whitewashed offensive Vietnamese. Like I wouldn't even call it Vietnamese. I went to the most whitewashed offensive restaurant that happened to serve what you would call fake Vietnamese and Chinese food. And I'm going to call them out right now because it was just like <laughs> the worst experience. It's called Saigon Kitchen and it's located in Tipton, Georgia. And basically my family and I were driving up from Florida and we were coming home from like your typical Disney summer vacation. And we had stopped by this place because we were craving Vietnamese food. We were sick and tired of eating, eating like overly expensive white people food. So like, but then little did we know we would run into another one with Saigon Kitchen. <laughs> because let me tell you, when I walked in there, I didn't see a single Asian person in the restaurant. It was all white people who were customers who served the food and who cooked the food too. And at first I was like, oh, this is like, okay. Like I didn't like no like alarm bells like went off in my head. I was just like, I'm just hungry. Just give me the menu. And then when I looked at the menu, I remember struggling to find on the menu. And then when I asked the server, okay, I asked the server where it was. And she was white. She said she had no idea what pho was. She had no idea what pho was. She thought I was cursing her out and saying the F word. And then she oh, had the God. audacity. She had the audacity to tell me, oh, we don't call that here. You know what they call pho? They call it flat noodle soup. Does that sound like the most whitewashed thing you've ever heard? Right? And then, y'all, it tasted awful. It tasted, like, god-awful. <laughs> it was, like, bland soup water, and it happened to have brisket in it, and it was expensive as hell. It was, like, bullshit. It was, like, a load of bullshit. And, I'm, I, like, I'm not afraid of calling them out on it because it was just, like, when I left, they were all looking at me, like, what the hell is pho? And I'm, like, how can you call a Vietnamese restaurant and you don't know what pho is? Like, pho is literally our national dish. And it's, That's like, crazy. It was wow. one of the worst food right right and it was like one of the worst food experiences i've ever had and i just think about like i'm very much in the same boat as sachi being like i'm super protective of my culture's food because i have seen how my culture's food can be bastardized and taken away and to the extent of like this was what like 2018 like this is the summer of 2018 guys to the point where like they didn't even know that pho was part of vietnamese cuisine like they didn't even know what it was you know what I mean? We're already there. Like we're, we're, we're saying like we're afraid of what might happen, but we're already there and it, it's happening in different pockets in America. Very much in the same boat of like, you need to know where it comes from. You need to hire and give back to the community if you're like profiting off of our food. Like there were no Vietnamese employees in that restaurant. There was no, like, so they're basically just stealing our food and then paying the money back to white people. It's not, it's not okay. That's insane. Thank you for sharing that. That's crazy. Wow. Yeah, I feel like that just really goes to show like, who can claim that food and make it and like get credit for it and profit off of it and who is just called dirty and gross for making it and eating it so yeah but um we have been talking for over an hour now and so it is about time to wrap up this amazing conversation so before we leave if everybody has like a quick recommendation can we recommend a favorite restaurant this food. Ooh, like our, yes, oh, that's food. a good idea. Let's put a twist on it. Let's do this. Yes. All right. Uh, whoever who wants to go first? I can go. Um, so masterpiece. If y'all haven't heard me rant on and on about this restaurant already, it is on Buford Highway in Duluth. It is actually like ranked the number one restaurant in Atlanta right now. So it's like it's achieved mainstream acceptance. But this is one of those exceptions where, like, I will walk in, and even if it's, like, mostly white people in there, I still know it's really good food. Um, it is this incredible Sichuan-style Chinese restaurant, so it's, like, a lot of really spicy food. Um, it, it's just so good. Um, I really like the crispy fried pork and the crispy fried eggplant. 
and the mapo tofu. So those are my recs. Check it out when we all get out of this. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'll um, take a second to hype up Goku Sweets Indicator <gasps> because I love that place. They have really good like pani puri, dahi chat, like all these different things, and it's like a good mixture of like things. That place is so good. It's making me hungry. But yeah, Decatur has literally a really every restaurant. Yeah, literally every restaurant in that plaza is like amazing. It's kind of like in that in that same vicinity, there's this like grocery store called Cherian's, which I freaking love. And they have like this restaurant, like kind of to the side in the back or whatever. And it's like not this like fancy, like you, I don't know if it even pops up on Google or whatever, but like they make food and it's literally so good. They make the most amazing dosas and they make amazing utapan, which is like this like very large vegetable pancake. And it's like freaking amazing. Um, but it's like not like I mean it's not like your up high end restaurant or whatever, but it's amazing. Um, my favorite restaurant. Well, okay, so I my favorite like dish is biryani. Um, and it's really hard to find good biryani, um, especially for my North Indian taste buds. Cause I can't do spice, so like high like uh, like authentic quote unquote like Hyderabadi biryani. Like it's, it's so good, but hard for me to eat. But my boyfriend's parents actually own a restaurant in John's Creek called Biryani Pot. Uh, and it slaps and the biryani is really good. And I, whenever I go in, they know that I have to ask, like they like purposely make my biryani super mild because they know that I can't take it, which is so funny. Um, but yeah, I love their biryani and they have other stuff too. They have a like, good chat and stuff that I love. Chat slaps. That sounds delicious. And also the fact that your boyfriend family owns a restaurant like wow okay rub it in rub it in um, <laughs> <so> my, favorite, <laughs> my favorite Vietnamese dish is actually not pho which is like to, to some people that's like wildly absurd but like my favorite Vietnamese dish is actually ban can you guys know Japanese udon noodles but it's like a like a softer version of that and it's like in this spicy broth with like tons of different types of meat and it's delicious you can put crab in it you can put brisket in it you can put um uh bean sprouts in it and it's squeeze a little bit of lime and it's like to put some sriracha and it's like ah chef kisses and then my favorite restaurant is pho 24 colon vietnamese noodle soup and grill at lawrenceville georgia and they have great fried rice they have great um which is like basically broken rice with um, long strips of like, there's like no bone, like, uh, what is it? No bone ribs, I guess, like long skinny ribs. And it's delicious. Um, but yeah, I highly recommend that place. Five stars. Amazing. All right. So that is it for episode two of Feminations, Dosas and Dumplings. Woo! Stay tuned for our next episode where Teresa will be walking us through a very complicated discussion of domestic and global politics. But yeah, until next time.